Well, we're back in Revelation 21 and 22 this morning as we finish up our short series on the book of Revelation. That's page 878 if you want to use the Bible in the seat back in front of you. For the rest of you, it's on about the second to last page of your Bible. Revelation 21. When I was nine years old, I moved with my mother and father and younger sister to 20 acres in rural Pennsylvania. And when I say we moved to 20 acres, I mean we moved onto the land. My father was building our new house himself. He and my mom had designed it. And by the time we moved there, I think the foundations were poured and the basement walls were just starting to go up. And so we spent several weeks late that summer camping in a tent while the basement was finished. Then that fall, we moved into the basement with cement floors and walls and joists overhead and uh, a wood stove for heat. And as a kid, that was all a big, fun adventure. But as I look back on it later, I wonder, what were my parents thinking? (laughs) And I think the answer is that they had in their eyes, or they had their eyes and their hope set on the future. They saw in their mind's eye the the dream home that they were constructing. And so that future made the present challenges and inconveniences more than worth it for them. And that's very much the kind of future vision that John, or Jesus wants to give us in the um, giving us the picture that we're considering last Sunday and this Sunday in Revelation 21 and 22. Jürgen Moltmann, the German theologian, put it very well. He said, From first to last, and not merely in the epilogue, Christianity is eschatology, is hope, forward-looking and forward-moving, and therefore also revolutionizing and transforming the present. The eschatological is not one element of Christianity, but is the medium of Christian faith as such, the key in which everything in it is set, the glow that suffuses everything here in the dawn of an expected new day. Could you feel that as they read Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22 this morning? I think there's this bug of, uh, of uh, twisted tongues going around this morning. <laughs> Uh, Another way to put it is that the New Testament in general and our passage in particular this morning is, as I've put it several times before, and I forgot my glasses this morning, it's giving us a new set of lenses through which to view reality. Our passage this morning is is showing us the future. It's giving us a picture of the future as, as the lens through which we're invited to view and live in the present. As we saw last week, our passage this morning is inviting us to come under the influence and the attraction of a city, a a future city, the city of all cities. For Revelation's original hearers, that city, the New Jerusalem, was in competition with another city, the great city of Rome, referred to in Revelation as Babylon the Great. Now, it's hard for us modern readers to grasp just how awe-inspiring the ancient city of Rome was. Rome ruled the world. Rome dictated policy. Rome influenced culture and fashion. Rome was the key to success in life. Rome was the original city that never slept. If you could make it there, you could make it anywhere. But Rome, like all modern cities, also had a dark underside. Rome was oppressive. Rome was dehumanizing. Rome was arrogant and corrupt and hostile to true faith in Christ. 
Rome had become Babylon, that archetypal wicked city of the past, as have far too many cities and civilizations even, or ever since and even today. So to help us get a realistic picture on ancient Rome and on every other city and nation today, and to set our hopes and our purposes on something better, in Revelation 21 and 22, Jesus gives us the vision of another city, a new city. As commentator George Caird puts it, for only in comparison with the new Jerusalem can the queenly splendors of Babylon be recognized as the seductive gods of an old and rattled whore. Well, to get our own perspective straight and to purify and to redeem our imaginations, let's gaze again this morning at the New Jerusalem. Last Sunday, we considered what was not in the city. And this morning, let's continue by looking at what is in the city. But first, a few more words this morning about how to understand Revelation 21 and 22, and all of Revelation for that matter. Because Revelation contains a lot of descriptions which can't, as far as we can tell, be literally true. I mean, Christ with seven horns and a sword sticking out of his mouth. Uh, angelic creatures with eyes all over their bodies. A city 1,300 miles high with walls 144 cubits or 200 feet thick. Any engineer will tell you that walls that thin could never support their height, especially if they're made out of gold. If you read the descriptions of Revelation literally, you find these kinds of problems all through the book. And of course, you're weirded out by all this strange and, and grotesque description of these creatures. But that's not how the book is meant to be read. The book isn't trying to give us literal descriptions. In fact, at various points, it tells us that the things being described represent something else. And sometimes it tells us what those something else's are. And sometimes it expects us to know or to figure it out, which has kept us busy ever since. <laughs> Revelation is rather trying to paint a picture in our imaginations and our emotions using symbols. Symbols which may be new and strange to many of us, but which were well-known and deeply meaningful to people in the first century. People who knew their Old Testaments better than most of us do, and who lived in the Roman Empire and were familiar with the Romans' symbols. Add, that, add to that the fact that much of what Revelation is trying to describe is beyond comprehension. That's why John is always using phrases like, it was like this, or it had the appearance of that. What John is trying to describe to us is like a flat person from the second dimension going to the third dimension and then coming back and trying to describe to people back in that flat dimension things like trees and cars and sunsets and mountains. I mean, they could sort of get it, but there would be so much more than they could ever really imagine. Well, likewise, we live in the third dimension, and last I heard, physicists have mathematical equations to model at least 11 dimensions. Can you imagine? And who knows what dimension the New Jerusalem is in? How could we ever imagine what it's really going to be like? So all John can do here is give us pointers, uh, symbols, and, and images to point us toward a reality which is something so great that describing it strains human language to the breaking point. 
I mean, what John is trying to do here is like us going and experiencing the power and majesty of Niagara Falls and then coming home and, and trying to, to describe it to some friends using a flannel graph. <laughs> so with that in mind, let's humbly and reverently try to imagine the amazing reality that John is trying to convey to us here. Verse 1, John says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. A new one will be needed because back in Revelation 20:11 we read that God when he sits on his great white throne to judge the earth and the heavens flee from his presence. This present earthly tainted and corrupted existence won't be able to stand in the presence of a God so pure and so holy and so God will create a new heavens and a new earth. So now let's look at nine realities which are there in this new heavens, in this new earth, this new creation. First, people are there. John describes the new Jerusalem in verse 2 as a bride coming down out of heaven from God, beautifully dressed for her husband. When the New Testament speaks about a bride, it's speaking about God's people whom, uh, or to whom Christ has pledged his undying devotion. So in other words, the New Jerusalem is not only a place, it's also a people, or better, a community of people. These people are the bride of Christ, the Lamb. They have been prepared by God to enter into union with Christ in love forever. Many a great story has ended with a wedding, right? You think of Lord of the Rings, um, the Princess Bride, just to name a couple. Weddings represent peace, overcoming war. They represent love, overcoming distance. They represent longing, satisfied. They represent new beginnings. And all that is true in this case, as never before, as Christ and we who are his people will celebrate our love and enter into a loving forever together. No more loneliness, no more unworthiness, no more regrets. We will be beautiful. We will be desirable. We will be accepted and cherished forever. And not only will we be the bride of the Lamb, we will also be children of the Father. Verse 7. We will have a Father, finally, who completely accepts us, who completely loves us, who strongly defends and provides for us, and who is proud of us. Second then, God is there in the New Jerusalem. God just permeates every aspect of this city. Verse 3, God's dwelling place is among his people. Verse 6, God is the beginning and the end. The end, it turns out, is not just a time or a place. The end is a person. The end is God. To arrive at the end of history is to arrive in God. Verse 11, the city is like Jasper. Jasper, if you remember back several weeks when we looked at Revelation 4, is how John describes God himself. God shines in and through this city like Jasper. Verse 23, God lives light to, gives light to this city. God and the Lamb are this city's light. Chapter 22, verse 3, God is on the throne in the city, ruling with the Lamb. And my favorite, chapter 21, verse 22, there's no temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
Did you hear that? God and the Lamb are the city's temple. John doesn't say that the whole city is God and the Lamb's temple. Though that's true. We saw last Sunday that the shape of the city is a perfect cube, just like the holiest place of the temple. But here, John says not that the whole city is God's temple, but that God and the Lamb are the city's temple. Now let's think about this. In any other city, you enter a temple to meet with God. But not in this city. Because if you are in this city, you are already in God. God is the city's temple. God is the temple of this city, which is a temple. Again, human language is, is bending and breaking to try to communicate what words can't adequately communicate. Listen to preacher Daryl Johnson as he grapples with this incredible reality. And if you want to read more about Revelation, if this series has whetted your appetite, I can't commend to you high, highly enough, and I forgot to bring it up here to show you, but Daryl Johnson's book, Discipleship on the Edge, studies in the book of Revelation. And he says there, pondering, is John saying that whereas in the old creation, God came and lived in the temple, in the new creation, the temple is in God. Is John saying that whereas in the old creation, God came and lived in the city, in the new creation, the city is in God. Is John saying that when we move into the temple, which is the city, we move into God? Nothing exists apart from God. Even in these old broken cities of ours, nothing exists apart from God. In the new sitting, or, sorry, in the new city, though nothing exists outside of God, all of redeemed reality is somehow encompassed by and enfolded in the triune God. We will finally live, consciously so, within the circle of the inner Trinitarian relations of God. We, mere creatures, and creation itself will be drawn into the circle of holy love that was forever or has forever existed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the new Jerusalem, God is there everywhere in all God's splendor and majesty and power and holiness and healing and love. In that city, we do, in every sense of the word, live and move and have our being in God. Wow. Wow. Third, there is glory there. In this city. Now, glory is a familiar religious word, but what does it actually mean? Well, I have never heard a better definition than the definition J.I. Packer gives, the theologian. He simply says, Glory is God on display. God on display. Glory is God showing God's self. And this new city is full of glory, full of God's self manifestation. And what is this glory like? Well, look at the city. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. It's powerful. It's awe-inspiring. It's immense. It is rich. It is luxurious. Have you ever gazed at, at a vast, starry 
um, night sky on a clear summer night? Have you ever stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon and looked across? If you have, is part of what you sensed in that moment that what you were looking at was profoundly and overpoweringly real? And maybe you felt small. The biblical word for glory is related to the words for weight or heaviness. There's substance to glory. There's, there's reality to it. It's, it's not a wish dream. It's not a mirage. It's not a shimmery nothingness. Glory is the realest thing there is. And the New, Test, uh, the New Jerusalem is full of glory. From the beautiful dress of the bride to the brilliance with which the city shines like jasper and clear as crystal, to the massive size of, of the city and her walls, to the twelve gates, each made of a single pearl and each inscribed with a name of one of the twelve tribes of old, to the twelve foundations, each a precious jewel and each inscribed with the name of an apostle, to the walls and the streets made of pure gold and, and yet pure as transparent glass. To the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne and running down the middle of the streets. To the tree of life alongside that river with its 12 crops of fruit and its leaves for the healing of the nations. And finally, to God and the Lamb themselves who reign in the city, who give it light and protection, who wipe away every tear, who dwell among their people. Wow, what glory. The kings of the earth bring their glory into the city. The glory and honor of the nations is brought into it. What city can compare to this? The Manhattan skyline? The Eiffel Tower? They pale in comparison. So do Beale Street and Bourbon Street, Soho and Chelsea, Capitol Hill and the National Mall, Disney World and Epcot, the Bahamas, the French Riviera, you get the idea. There is glory, true glory, in this new city. Fourth, there's redeemed creation in this city. Notice that the city isn't up there in heaven somewhere. No, it's down here on a new earth. Contrary to so much popular religion, at the end, humanity does not go up to dwell with God, but rather God comes down to dwell with humanity. This city is material. There is stuff in this city. It, it is creation, new creation, no doubt, but creation nonetheless. Look at verse 5. God says, I am making all things new. God does not say, I am making all new things, but rather, I am making all things new. Creation redeemed. There was a This Old House episode a while back which illustrates this well. Do some of you like This Old House, the show where they show a, an old house being renovated? This episode took place in Roxbury, Massachusetts, an old, old suburb of Boston. And they picked an ancient row house. It was in such bad shape, it was literally falling apart. From the ground floor, you could see all the way up to the roof. There was trash and weeds in the yard. The uh, appliances were just rust and ooze. 
The, the walls sagged in. What was left of the plaster was falling off onto the floor, which was strewn with garbage and junk. And as you looked at it, you thought, there's no hope for this house. They should just bulldoze it and start over. That would be far easier. But a nonprofit group in the community saw something worth preserving in that old house. And, and so they started with the foundation. And it was in such bad shape that they couldn't repair it. So they jacked the whole house up and they restored the foundation underneath and then set it back down. And from there, you saw time-lapse updates of the house as, amazingly, it was made new again. It was restored and transformed. The same old house, same design, some of the original materials, but made completely new. And as this went on through the program, some of the other neighbors started fixing up their old houses. <laughs> they thought, boy, someone thinks this neighborhood is worth something. And that's what this new creation, this new Jerusalem will be like. A new, redeemed creation. God isn't going to completely bulldoze the old creation. Oh, he's going to purify it. He's going to purge it of all evil, but without destroying or doing away with the good in it. And that means that when the new creation comes into being, there's going to be something strangely and wonderfully familiar about it. Bible scholar N.T. Wright comments, Salvation then is not going to heaven, but being raised to life in God's new heaven and new earth. We are saved not as souls, but as wholes. Jesus, of course, is the proof of this. When, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was the firstfruits, the prototype, Scripture says, of all who will be raised and of the new creation. And at the resurrection, Jesus was still embodied. He could eat. He had scars. He was glorified. He was different. Yet at the same time, he was the same. He had a body. He was the Jesus that his disciples had known. And so it will be with us. And so it will be in some way we can't fully understand with the whole new creation. It will still be creation with all of the goodness and satisfaction creation can offer, but with all of the evil and the brokenness taken away. Fifth, there will be peoples in the new creation. Peoples, plural, verses 24 to 26. Kings come into the city and nations walk by its light. This is a city for all peoples. All cultures participate in it. I recently heard a statistic about New York City that there are 93 different immigrant groups living in the borough of Brooklyn alone. 93. Can you imagine 93 ethnicities representing every continent of the world living together or trying to live together in Brooklyn? Well, the New Jerusalem will be far more multi-ethnic than that. Think of the food. <laughs> Think of the culture. Daryl Johnson comments, God gathers up within God the full range of the world's ethnic diversity. No one ethnic grouping can bear or manifest the full image of God. It takes us all. And in the new city, we are all there as God's multi-ethnic race. Since that is the shape of the future, we might as well seize the opportunity placed before us in the cosmopolitan cities of our world. Guatemalans, Cubans, Syrians, Armenians, Swedes, Scots, Kenyans, Koreans. 
We are all going to be there as God's people. Six, there is creativity and culture in the New Jerusalem. Nations and kings come into the city, bringing their honor and their glory. The lamb rules in the city and his servants serve him. This isn't a picture of heavenly harps and dreamy clouds or endless worship services. This is a picture of life happening, of human activity and organization. Theologian Anthony, Anthony Hokema ponders, will there be better Beethovens on the new earth? Shall we see better Rembrandts, better Raphaels? Shall we read better poetry, better drama, and better prose? Will scientists continue to advance in technological achievements? Will architects continue to build imposing and attractive structures? Dallas Willard, writer and professor at USC, adds, we will not sit around looking at each other or at God for eternity, but will join the eternal Logos, reign with him in the endlessly ongoing creative work of God. It is for this that we have, or we were each individually intended as both kings and priests. A place in God's creative order has been reserved for each one of us from the beginning or from before the beginning of cosmic existence. His plan is for us to develop as apprentices to Jesus to the point where we can take our place in the ongoing creativity of the universe. I don't know what God has in store for me, but a couple of my goals for the New Jerusalem are to master the electric guitar and to learn to play hockey. <laughs> because I won't lose teeth in the New Jerusalem. <laughs> Some of us, like the... Uh, the um, Rothschilds are braver than I am at this present time. <laughs> Seventh, there will be life in the New Jerusalem. Streams of living water pour forth from God's throne. And the tree of life stands beside this river bearing abundant fruit. All can eat. All can drink. This city will be life as it was meant to be. This will be really living. Life in all of its vibrant, creative, energetic potential. A life which doesn't grow stale, which is never boring, which doesn't run down toward death, which doesn't fall into tragedy. An indestructible, unquenchable life. Eight, there is healing in the city. 22.2, the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. For those of us who follow Christ, we are experiencing healing in this lifetime, healing from past painful memories, healing for emotional wounds, physical healing too sometimes. But we never fully get healed in this life, do we? We, we always live with a certain level of pain and, and brokenness and frailty and mortality. But when we get to that city, our healing will be finally complete. We will finally be whole again, pain-free. And not only as individuals, but as families and as communities and as even nations. Finally, the world will be whole and healthy again, at peace as it was meant to be. Finally, ninth, and perhaps best of all, God's face will be there in the city. 22.4, and we will see his face. 
Not only will the whole city be imbued with the presence and glory of God in some mystical and powerful way, but in a very personal way, we will see and know him face to face. As a bridegroom gazes on the face of his bride, as a bride looks into the eyes of her beloved, so we will see and know our God and Savior face to face. We'll enjoy a relationship with our Creator. We'll love and will be loved without regrets, without fear or hiding, without masks of self-protection. We'll enjoy the love and the intimacy, the acceptance and the companionship we all long for. What a city. What other city can hold a candle to this city? Well, finally, who is it that gets to look forward to all this? Verse 7, those who are victorious will inherit all this. Victorious, I, I love that word. It's the Greek word nikao, think Nike. So named after the Greek goddess for victory. This city is for those who represent what Nike at its best represents. Not so much being coordinated or athletic or stylish or a star, but rather being victorious because you, you dug down deep, you persevered, you gave it all you had. Life in this world is a struggle. It especially was for the first readers of Revelation who were being tempted and pressured to deny their bridegroom. They, they needed to persevere. They needed to, to hang in there. They needed to be faithful to their true love. Not in their own strength, not by their own resources, but because they were sustained by God, by God's strength, by God's love, and by the vision that God was giving them in Revelation that it would all be worth it because at the end of the race, they would be entering the new city to a victor's welcome and would take their places among champions who were faithful, who persevered, who dug down deep and, and fought the good fight and finished the race. So here's the challenge. It's to live so as to be victorious. It's to set your sights now on the new Jerusalem and to live for the prize of that city and not for the charms of any lesser city. It's to sing with the hymn writer, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. God, there is so much propaganda out there competing for our imaginations, offering us other sets of lenses to wear. And so things get all muddy for us in our minds, in our hearts. Things get warped and distorted. We wind up running after things that can never satisfy. And instead of enthralling us and setting us free and giving us life. They only enslave us and cause us to die a little more inside. They rob us and steal us of life. And so I pray 
in your mercy that you would keep this vision before us so that we can see clearly and live victorious lives, faithfully following you now as we look forward to that day when you welcome us into the city. Amen.